Welcome to another episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. I am one of the co-hosts. My name is Tom Bell. How's it going? This is Joshua Trinidad. Hey, Josh. And this is episode uh, number 13, but Minnesota, not Minnesota, Yeah. Um, no. mini episode number one. Uh, right. Josh, this was your idea. You, you, had, yeah. you and I had been talking about trying to get more content out. And so talk a little bit about what you think these minisodes will do or these mini episodes will do Sure. Um, while we're doing the larger uh, episodes yeah. in, in addition. So. Sure. Well, I know, you know, we may have some listeners that, that like, you know, they like our podcast and, and sometimes it takes a commitment to sit down and listen to the whole thing. Right. Or sometimes we have to listen to it in chunks, but, for some of us, you know, we maybe have a 20, 30 minute drive to the store or, you know, maybe because no one's happy. going anywhere. Nobody's going anywhere, but at least people that you... probably listen to this podcast are probably not going out to many places. That's no, no. <laughs> but you, you may do something that's 20, 30 minutes long. And this way, you know, you can get a whole, you know, uh, what do you call a Minnesota. <laughs> in one listening. So we thought this would be a great way to to do that. Yeah, I'm excited. And I'm excited to get more content. I've always wanted to, to find a way to kind of sneak in current events because, you know, I'm a social studies person, right? So, like, right. my background is, is history and political science. And so I always wanted to talk about this stuff. And we did from time to time, but we never really had, um, by the time that we got done doing an interview or prepping for those things, it just never really fit. And so this is a good opportunity to do that. So um, let's jump right in. There's a lot that's, I mean, there's a lot going on that we can talk about. We're, we're gonna isolate the mini episodes to maybe two, max three topics. And right. I promise that they won't always involve the President of the United States. And hopefully after January of next year, at least we'll be criticizing a President who has humanity's best interest at heart um but in this particular episode we will be focusing um a lot on the actions of the federal government and the administration decisions um first is the language in the speech that was delivered by president trump on july 3rd at mount rushmore um and uh we'll talk a little bit about that and then we're going to talk about um some of the things that have happened in the last couple days related to schools and the, and the right. threats from the federal government about both universities being open in the fall and the impact of that, and now the PK-12 schools um, having some threat to be open in the fall. And Josh and I both being educators, uh, Josh working in the PK-12 school, but also being involved in higher ed and me in higher ed, but preparing folks to work in PK-12 school, the implications of this is pretty significant. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to chat about that. So. Before we get to it, Josh, you doing all right? Everything good? Yeah, everything's good. Um, just been, uh, you know, spending as much time at home as possible as, you know, many of us are. And, you know, I feel like even just stepping off my property, even like to the alley, it feels like, um, like liberating and also kind of scary at the same time. I know it sounds so crazy, but that's, that's how much I've been, um, so truthful to the quarantine so i don't know how you feel but that's that's definitely how i've been feeling yeah i mean we had some pretty anxious moments in the last 48 hours our air conditioning unit went out in our house and um not only was it like 
100 degrees with humidity in Michigan or feels like 100 degrees. But we had to have someone come in our house that doesn't live here <laughs> to fix it today. And that, that was pretty nerve-wracking. He's the first human being that doesn't live in my house that stepped foot in, in, in our physical space since March 8th, I think it was the last time my in-laws oh, were here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a different experience for us. So that was definitely a, yeah. a moment of like, can I walk in my kitchen after he's been here? I mean, he wore a mask. Like he did a great job. So I was really sure, with, sure. with all the work that he yeah. did. So, yeah. Yeah. That's what's going on here in the, in the, in the Bell household. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. So uh, let's get into it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So last Friday, uh, around this time, um, probably a little bit after we had wrapped our interview with Dr. Cabrera, uh, President Trump was at it again, uh, having some conversation with folks uh, at Mount Rushmore um, in South Dakota. Uh, yeah. So what he said, uh, and I'll quote here from directly from his speech, our na- nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate mm. our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know what they are doing. They think that the American people are weak and soft and submissive, but no. The American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. Josh, what do you think about that? Uh, I, think, I, I, I think you emphasized it as you were reading it. Um, oh man, did I bury, then, did I, did I give away the lead? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I'm going to riff off that, you know, you, you kept saying our, and you know, our values, our history, our, um, you know, heroes. And so, you know, that ownership doesn't sit well with me. And, you know, when we think about who he's referencing and, and who he's speaking to, I mean, this is the epitome of not only racism, but white supremacy specifically. And so, you know, and, and it's just interesting that at that time, you know, there was some strong protesting happening. Um, the, I guess the main road that was that leads up to Mount Rushmore and they cleared it out um, to make way for uh people to come to Trump's speech and to move those protesters out of the way. And, you know, I just think of those groups. I mean, just to look at the groups, one protesting and the one listening to that speech and, and thinking about our current state of this country, um, this this is such a mess. And it's not like Trump's doing anything to make it better. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know if he, it's already going through his head, like, and I hope this is a circumstance, is that, he won't be our president, you know, after the election. And so I don't know if this is just kind of like getting in these last final jabs, but this jab is, it just speaks so deep to what he's going to leave, regardless if he's our president or not. He is, um, he's going to leave such a, a horrible mark um, on, on America. So that, that's what I think about is that even if he's not elected president, which is my hope, there's there's a lot of work that's going to need to be done for generations to to correct this. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing, you know, like uh, you know, we made a mention of it in our episode with Dr. Cabrera too, like 
the fact that the speech is happening on Lakota tribe land, right, on a, mm-hmm. on a monument that was built honoring two slaveholders, an individual who um, had multiple indigenous Americans um, killed simultaneously, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt, who, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. So, I mean, like, though, that's problematic in one sense, right? So we can talk right. about the, the colonial framework of how um, white folks have taken over other land and, and, and taken over space that was a monument to the folks that were here before white folks were mm-hmm. here, right? right? So that's one piece of it. And then the second part of that, I guess, would be, as you were kind of talking about, you know, these monuments, what are they symbol- symbolic of, right? So, like, what do they really mean? In Michigan, you know, our governor just said that um, the CAS building, the federal, the state CAS building, uh, which is one mm-hmm. of the buildings in downtown Lansing, is getting renamed. And oh. uh, because the person it was named after, uh, who's a senator in Michigan, had slaves. And yeah. uh, which I think yeah. is awesome. Like, I think it's great that she's doing that. Like, I don't. Um, we need to be honest about our history, right? And so this is not erasing history. It's being honest about where this country, as it stands now as a political nation state, right, yeah. um, is and how it has evolved. And, and not recognizing and naming these things is problematic. And I think honoring individuals right. value human life, I guess is what right. I say that, um, is, is, a, is a sign of, our own ability to evolve and say, you know, that just, that's not okay. Right. Right. Can still, right. And, and that's, I think that's part of the piece too, that was so fascinating in our conversation with Dr. Cabrera too, is like, I think there's complexity to all of us and we all have our space yeah. of growth and we all have these things that we come from and we need to talk about those things, but it's just not excusable. I'll just leave it at right. that. Like, right. you know what I mean? So I think, I think the defending of, of, of upholding monuments is problematic because I can't, I, I have not heard an argument yet outside that, that has come from anybody that's not, that doesn't identify as white right. um, as to why we should keep yeah. this up. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it makes me think of um, something very simple. Like when we, for those individuals that are listening, if you celebrate Easter um, mm-hmm. and we tell our kids the Easter buddy is this thing, drops off gifts, I don't know, hides eggs, I don't know, whatever the Easter Bunny does, every household is different if you do that stuff. But it's very interesting the day that your kids find out that the Easter Bunny isn't real, much like Santa Claus, right? And there kind of goes through this transformation of like, wait, I'm, I'm in disbelief, like, there's no way. Like, this is how it's always been, this is how it always should be, and now you're telling me that this individual isn't real, um, this Easter Bunny. Why did you ever tell me that in the first place? You know, like why did you why did why did you do that? Because it was I don't know, it was fun, I guess. I don't know. And I think about our history in that sense here in the United States is like it all starts in schools. Like it really does, and the way that we work with our families as students and cultures kind of collide together for raising kids and you know and I think what we're trying to do right now is to be like yo (laughs) 
Um, I know everybody listening to Trump's speech, y'all are probably between the ages of like 30 and 70, but hey, the Easter Bunny is not real. No, that's that's impossible. These are our heroes. And nobody's broke the news to that group of people and they don't want to hear it. You know, right. they've been perpetuating this lie and it's hard. I mean, to break a lie to a six-year-old, an eight-year-old is really hard. Imagine a 50-year-old. Like, it's like almost impossible, right? So, yeah, like, and, what work can we do? And that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to understand, right? So, you know, you see a lot of the folks saying things like, oh, this was around for eight years and the Confederacy was only around for five. And so we're honoring something that only lasted five years. And when you really think about it, like, these folks were not heroes. They were villains. They were traitors. Um, so I, I really don't understand. And so when you look at the historical aspect, and I think getting to your point of schools, and we'll move on to the next topic too, I think that's a good transition, is we need to do a better job of explaining in history how these monuments were constructed and why. And that why question is super important. Right? Exactly. So it was a power yeah. play. It was a power play to say yeah. by elite whites, putting them directly in front of courthouses, putting them directly in front of government buildings. We are in control. We have that power, and we're going to monumentalize individuals that we think reflect our, back to the language of Trump, our values, which is white-centered, white nationalist um, approaches, even though it may not be as overt in some cases. But this is pretty damn overt, in my opinion. You know what I mean? (laughs) It is. Yeah, yeah. So... And that kind of is a good transition to the next part of his speech, and then we'll get into the school piece. Um, he said later on, one of the politi- one of their their political weapons is cancel culture, driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. He later went on to say, in our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate bedrooms, there is a new far left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. And it's not going to happen to us. Really what's funny about the hypocrisy of this is, is like, and that gets to the part of forcing schools to stay open, demanding people to stand for the pledge, demanding people, you know, um, uphold and say Merry Christmas. Like, when you talk about those things that he has kind of campaigned on and, and got a lot of traction on with his base, it's exactly the things that he's saying are happening in the schools, which I don't think is the case. You and I both right. have taught, and I've never yeah. told anyone how to think, but I try to yeah. teach them, try to teach them to think and to be yeah. critical and to think right. about what they're what they're consuming and how they're consuming it and making meaning out of it. Um, yeah, and that relates to equity issues, right? Yeah. That's what right. are your thoughts on his statement there? Well, I mean, that just goes to say, like. It's, I think it falls in line that we don't, and I don't mean we, but what he's probably referencing is that he doesn't want, you know, critical thinking to happen because what's that good, what's that going to do to him? What's that going to do for his campaign? What's that going to do for his legacy? If people (laughs) were critically thinking uh, when they voted for him, he wouldn't have got votes. And so he is just maintaining a you know, a very low level of civic understanding and civic engagement. And he's doing everything he can to make sure that as long as he says that this is what engagement looks like, that that's what it maintains. And so he's he's stifling criticalism. And um, by doing so, he's maintaining his power. And we've seen this in history. 
over and over again. And so he's following a playbook right now. So, I mean, think about this from the perspective of who, whose family has had personal harm because of these Confederate soldiers, so or what the Confederacy stood for. So mm-hmm. a black and or African-American person um, who walks into a federal courthouse in Mississippi and sees that person as a value of the state and what they believed. I mean, that is right centering whiteness right and so then he signed an executive order basically saying anyone that is caught ripping down these monuments will be sentenced to up to 10 years in prison right and think about who is doing most of the demonstrating right the right. black and brown folks in this country right yeah not right. only that but it's also the youth it's it's young right. black and brown uh individuals that are the future of our country and if he's trying to put them away for 10 years for basically protesting i mean he's trying to create a long system of oppression i mean outside of his presidency right yeah and it's it's problematic on multiple fronts and then so kind of getting into his then stronghold in uh tantrum if you will about schools reopening so one uh, switching gears a little bit about, uh, if that's okay, um, he basically said a couple a week or so ago to the universities, reopen your campuses or you're going to lose, we'll, we'll make it difficult for international students to stay. And, um, you know, if they're taking online courses, we'll find ways to revoke, revoke their visa status. Right. Um, and I guess I should say I'm not surprised when, you know, um, we've had uh daca being upheld and being able to be put back in place um at yes. least he can't do it the way he he was trying to undo it um this is just another move though and now for folks that are here under visas like these aren't even the dreamers like these are folks that came under school visas right um right. and that's just problematic and so why would we put these folks in danger like, I don't understand yeah. the power play behind this except for trying to strong arm universities and push this narrative of we need to open up. We need to open up America because it's good for all of us to get sick. I really don't like I don't I'm, I'm trying to have an understanding of like the political win on this one. Yeah, well, I was just um, I was talking to my younger sister, Tracy. She's she's a doc student at DU here in Denver, and she's the smarter Trinidad, right? She like, is definitely the smarter Trinidad. <laughs> I should have asked she, her to co-host this with me. She should be co-hosting this. She always she teaches me something every day. But we're we're part she's of this. She's also uh, a musician too, right? She is. Uh, yeah, she's a Barry saxophone player. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but you know, you bring up a good point, and there's there's this post I want to read from this group that my sister added me into called um, Colorado Schools for Safe Safe Openings, 14 Days, No New Cases. And somebody posted in this um, in this group uh, something I think that was pretty intriguing. And I want to read it here. Let me just pull it up. Sorry. I guess a lot of people have posted since then. Um, that basically um, teachers and students are becoming sacrificial lambs for you know, forty thousand dollars a year to teach students at a time when bars are supposed to be closed, that travel restrictions are in place, but yet schools like mine that are like a thousand people in a day are to return to work and to return to learning 
Um, it just doesn't line up. And so if we know our government to be what it is, this has nothing to do with learning. This has nothing to do with taking care of teachers in our community. This has everything to do with Trump's vision for the economy and what he wants it to do. And he's sacrificing our teachers and our students to do so. And that I mean, is at, at the higher level of education too. Yeah, and I, I don't really, you know, because he also, Betsy DeVos, and he came out with uh, threats today to cut federal funding, as you kind of pointed out, from schools that don't reopen. So this is both on the PK-12 level and on the higher right. level in different ways in which they can put right. leverage and pressure on institutions of education. And so don't get me wrong, like, I think having kids in school is um, – socially a good thing i think spaces for learning is a good thing and we can get right. into and you and i have talked a lot about maybe this is our opportunity to rethink what school is and how right. education and the educational project could occur in a way particularly if we're looking at dismantling whiteness which and white supremacy which is really entangled in our schools um right. maybe this is a good time for us to rethink that or think differently about it but to, to force kids and teachers to go back into those spaces that we already know are somewhat problematic in the first place. Sure. And, you know, when we're starting to thinking about, are we going to institute high stake test takings and in, into that, are we going to expect, um, uh, uh, count days to occur that the way they've counted. Right. Oh, because right. you know what I'm, you know what I mean? So if you have That's a whole other sick, thing, yeah, it's a whole nother thing. And so, yeah. and then you start thinking about, okay, so in, in our spaces and schools that are underfunded, under-resourced, um, and, and left to basically buy for themselves, um, you know, again, those schools tend to have higher populations of economically disadvantaged right. folks and families, high numbers of folks of color, and the spaces aren't conducive for um, well, one, they're highly condensed and so are highly populated. And so, like, you can't socially distance. Like, you can't no. do that. The ventilation system in the schools are not up to date and st and really strong, right? So, like, right. I just I, I get that we want to continue to move the educational process forward and not have students lose a full year of instruction. But this right. is an opportunity maybe instead to push that for our communities and our state leaders and our state governments and our federal government to say, maybe we need to rethink how education occurs and the delivery mechanisms of that. Absolutely. That might be even better than what it is, as opposed to just push forward with this narrative of it's 1955 and everyone needs to sit in the classroom right. and learn from yeah. the teacher. Right. And I, you know, I, I think about two things here, Tom, like I remember we were taking a class earlier in our doc program about the history of education taught by one of our favorite professors. And she was talking about. <laughs> she looked like this. <laughs> yeah, she looked exactly like that. Yeah. Um, and she talked to, you know, she did say something that I thought was, it was definitely true. And it was in our textbook about how the pendulum of education swings from mm. being a very, you know, uh, apprenticeship style, very one-on-one, um, close, uh, relationship experience to that of being one once the GI Bill hit everybody was coming into schools was just kind of like this large experience more students more students more students but now we have to think about like maybe we have to swing that pendulum back and that this is an opportunity for students to really engage with 
other educators, like how we're engaging right now, this one-on-one mm -hmm. experience virt virtually and how the possibilities are kind of endless now that it's like, well, I want to take, you know, I want to learn this from this individual. Well, by being virtual, that person who holds the knowledge or experience is more available than maybe they have been in the past. And so, you know, I think maybe we are seeing that pendulum swing, but in a, in a kind of a Z axis versus, you know, along the X axis. So I'm wondering if that's what's happening now, um, the possibilities. And then second, what I wanted to say too was, um, as, as we're returning back to school, um, I, I, my hope is that the teachers and administrators begin to revolt and, and say that this is not what we want to do, regardless of what the president thinks is best. Um, and I'm already starting to see some steam pick up, um, but I'm wondering at what point is it going to be an issue with funding? And that brings up another, you know, topic is, you know, Trump can't just say he's not going to fund. That's that's impossible. There's mm -hmm. steps, uh, you know, Congress has a say and governors they do have the first race. They, they, right. they do. <laughs> that's what it said. Yeah. In a CNN article I was just reading. Yeah. That yeah. exact so, quote. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, that's what the th I mean, that's the whole purpose behind the the legislative branch is is to. Right. To fund and and have the budgetary uh, process be embedded in there. It's what gives them their power. And when right. they they give that up, which they have given it up in the past uh, to the president, it, it, it becomes problematic. And you start to see, you know, that we are no longer a three branch system of government with, with the powers equally distributed um, for checks and balances. But one of the things that I think is interesting, you know, we. I got a memo today from the Michigan Department of Ed, and I don't really know if it's public information or not, but I, I'm going to share it because I think it's interesting. The, MD, it. the MDE is partnering with Detroit Public Television to develop a learning network, and what they want to do is they want to create educational programming that's on television for kids. So oh, we're already in a position we, where we know that there are internet connectivity gaps, right, throughout right. – most, right. you know, whether it's rural, extreme rural areas or even in some of our urban spaces where right. our families don't have good internet or good connectivity or devices in which are appropriate for learning. Um, sure. So they're really looking at the television content to providing additional um, mechanisms and delivery methods for content. And I, and I know that part of the, the move, I suppose, for at least the PK-12, again, I can't start thinking about the higher ed. The higher ed is just a move, um, I think, against folks that are here from other countries. Um, and that really is positioned in, in a whiteness frame, um, in my opinion. But I, I know that the PK-12 is so that parents don't have to stay home, right? So if the kids aren't in school, Who's going to take care of the kids and is are you know is are we going to send people back to work and and that's right, really the right. intersection i think of the perverse intersection of our cap, capitalistic framework with right. with how we function and, and we always center work and work is not always a priority and it and i understand that how this country has advanced is that we've created some toxic and unhealthy workspaces right but again at some point that pendulum has to shift and we have to start thinking differently about the quality of life we want to lead. We can still advance. We can still progress. But at the cost of, 
human life is problematic. And so we have to just think differently about it. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you also bring up a point about who in these situations will prevail as well without any structures of support. And, you know, and I think about those that are privileged in our society that maybe have the ability to learn at home and those that can't, right? right. And, but I, I think, you know, it's like the president obviously doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because when kids return, I mean, there's going to be so many different levels of trauma that oh, how yeah. can a student, how can a student be held accountable to learn under these like extremely rough and hazardous conditions? I mean, I, I mean, I think about myself, like, let's put ourselves in this. Like, I don't think I can listen in class from a professor and do my best knowing that if somebody coughs, that that could kill me. For the next you know? 14 days, you're going to be worried about that sneeze or that yeah. cough. That's and have that you so, right. been in a second grade classroom recently? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I was just thinking about that for our middle school. Like, we yeah. have a thousand kids, and let's say not all of them come, but even 400, let's say four or 500 show up. I mean, we can't even get whatever school rules we have. We're going to tell them to wear mask. Yeah. Let's see how this goes. Um, but I'm just thinking about the different levels of trauma and, and kids' performance. Like, we're not going to get the best. Um, and is this what's best for kids knowing that these circumstances exist? You're not going to get the best from your teachers or no. administrators either. Cause I would be constantly right. worried about that. You know, I, one of the things that we're thinking about, we have student teachers that need to go out into the field or, or pre-service teachers that need to go and do practicums and on our end. And I'm, I'm starting to really think, is that ethical for us to do that? Right. Um, right. That's that's a very good point. Both on on the end of for the safety of our folks, but also for the districts that are letting our students come in. Um, right. So our my my ultimate hope is that things go virtual and that our student teachers do the virtual teach student teaching experience with the mentor teacher. That's I right. think the best case scenario in terms of like safety. Um, yeah. But again, you know, there is no practical good option here. Um, and for families that are single parent families where the parent has to work and it yeah i was just thinking too like what did what did he say like if you don't return back in higher ed um uh, for those international for international students they'd be sent home because it's online yeah, yeah um, if they're taking any online courses they they have to go home to their to work. yeah so um i i heard through the grapevine what metro state University here in Denver is doing is that they're going to have something called a lab in quotations where a student will come to campus for 20 or 30 minutes. Um, not mandatory, but it's on their um, it's on their uh, their schedule as in yeah. in person, just to maintain that in person uh, kind of uh, uh, instruction. Yeah, yeah. So and and so I know institutions are thinking. How do we get creative with this um, yeah. to 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 say, yeah, they did meet in person, but they didn't, you know? And so yeah. I, I know that Metro is currently thinking that through right now. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as we kind of, I think, wind down this episode, uh, I have a, a quick thought that is just kind of um, out there, and I, I just want to see your thoughts on it too. Um, you know, I, it, it seems as if, the white folks that really cared about Black Lives Matter 
movements three weeks ago and wanted to have a lot of discussions and learn a lot of things. And I'm not, so this isn't meant to be a shaming exercise, but I'm just curious, like, I'm not seeing the same fervor from white folks on this. And my, my concern is that it will fall back. And, um, you know, part of the call to action is for white folks to do more. And I guess maybe we can talk about in the future, and I know that we're going to have um, some folks on in a couple weeks or in a week um, or so to talk about how to raise anti-racist kids. Um, and so that's, I think, a step for folks to continue that dialogue. But my concern is that this is starting yeah. to drive down a little bit. So how do you think we can kind of get folks to continue to keep that pressure up, particularly for white folks to continue to engage and not just lose, I hate to say lose interest, but, you yeah. know, um, you know, I was contacted by a group of people that wanted me to come in and do some talk, a talk with them. And now I'm trying to get a hold of them and basically <laughs> it's yeah. crickets all around. Sure, so, sure. You know, so I, I just am wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, that's something we were talking to Dr. Cabrera about and, and just knowing when to step forward and when to step yeah. back. And, and, you know, as a as an educator and leader of color, I, I'm, I'm reserving myself a lot because I want to see what other white leaders and teachers are going to do in order to maintain this level of intensity, because if if they don't and it comes back to falling on my shoulders, we're going to go back to status quo. And yeah. so, um, you know, that was a question that we, we had discussed last time was when when do we step forward or when do we step back? Because, I mean, ultimately, we cannot let this just become silent. Right. But, but I think for people of color that are leaders in their institutions and specifically teaching our students, I think we need to let it get a little weird and a little quiet because it needs to fall on their shoulders again to say, wait, what happened? And for us to step back and say, let's, let's just see what they do. And I purposely am not going to lead a, a diversity group at my school. I'm not going to do that. I'm waiting for somebody to step up and answer an email I sent out last week to say, who's going to do that? I'm not going to do it. Who's going to do it? <laughs> you know, and that, that email still has not been responded to. Yeah. And, you know, there's I'm waiting on some of my white leaders in my school to say, yo, I'll do it because I, I, I love what we need to maintain. And so I, I, I feel the same as you, Tom, that the, it, the intensity has fallen just a bit down a bit. The gas is, is kind of dripping. So for the white folks that listen to this podcast, this is your call to action again of, of how are you stepping up the intensity? How are you continuing to push um, anti-racist frameworks? How are you trying to challenge um, whiteness and white supremacy in the spaces that you're a part of and and to give um, the choir of folks of color a chance to breathe, um, to use Dr. Cabrera's uh, analogy that he used. So I love that 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 analogy about the singers. Um, and so, I, yeah. you know, let us know. Let us know how you're doing it. Write us an email. You can write us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. You can tweet, uh, use Twitter and, and, and uh, you know, shoot us a tweet on how you're, how you're disrupting practice at Disrupt Whiteness. Um, uh, you know, you can email me personally, tbell3 at gmail.com. 
Um, you can leave a comment on the webpage, uh, but we want to know how white folks are continuing to push um, and be active in, in disrupting whiteness. And, and again, like I said, giving folks of color a little bit of reprieve while they catch their collective breath um, and, and have a little rest uh, so that way we continue the fight together. Right. Um, and if you're listening to and you're sitting there saying, well, I post on Facebook and I, and I talk to, you know, my neighbors and be vulnerable. And at, if you feel like you want to ask how to do it, we're available to say like, this is what, what you could do. If you're sitting there saying you think you, you think you just need some direction um, and you need that support, like maybe the question you need to ask is right here. You could be vulnerable with me and Tom and say like, I don't know how to do more. What can I do? Yeah. And that's, I think, how we're going to end it today, right? Yes. What that's a minisode. <laughs> minisode. <laughs> uh, as always, you can find us on uh, all of the platforms that have podcasts. Um, obviously, you found us somehow. Uh, all of our podcasts are available archived on our website, whitenessinamerica.com. Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter at Disrupt Whiteness and email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. Uh, any final thoughts, Josh? No, I just uh, I encourage everybody to stay critical, stay safe, and, and keep the foot on the gas pedal. And thanks again for joining us on Whiteness in America podcast, where we are designed to disrupt and dismantle. Have a great day. Yes.